in the scriptures, maybe there's two passages that highlight confessing our sin better than any other passages. The first would be Matthew 6, 12 through 13. Forgive us our debts uh, as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation. Keep us from evil, but forgive us. We need forgiveness. And then 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, if we confess our sins. That's what we must do. But the question is, how do we confess sin? What does that look like to confess sin? I believe that the best picture in all of Scripture of what it looks like to actually confess our sins is found in Psalm 51. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Psalm 51? As we continue in our Summer Through the Psalm series, when we come to the Lord's table, I just thought this would be a perfect psalm to just sit and simmer and, and be um, challenged and encouraged by. And so I want to read this psalm, Psalm 51, a psalm that is very familiar to you, but a psalm nonetheless that we need every day. Psalm 51, for the choir director, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. O God, the God of my salvation, then my tongue will sing joyfully of your righteousness. O oh Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise, because you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem, and then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Father, we pray as we take our time this morning to look at this passage. We pray that you would be pleased to do a work in our hearts to reveal our own sin and the evil, wicked nature of it. That your Spirit would work in our hearts to bring to the surface what it is that we desperately need to confess this morning. And that we would run to Jesus for mercy. God, thank you for your son. 
that he is quick to forgive, that he is filled with loving kindness, that he loves to give us mercy. Grant that we would have grace this morning to see Jesus and to run to him. We pray in his name. Amen. As you can see, this psalm starts with the superscription for the choir director. It is a psalm of David, and I want you to note that it is for the choir director. This is not, as most people think, a letter or a song or a poem that David wrote and that somehow we found and we get to eavesdrop. Um, He wrote this specifically for people to be singing it. Uh, He wrote it like a you know, a, a Gettys tune or, or an old hymn that we would sing. Somebody wrote a hymn for the purpose of our edification that we would sing it, that we would learn. David wrote this psalm for the choir director to be sung in front of all of Israel so that they would have a pattern for confession. They would know his sin. They already knew his sin. And now they would see how he's turning from it. They would see what he is doing about it. David is laying out for us a pattern of true confession. Our confession, if we're honest, tends to be trite and shallow. It tends to be, God forgive me. And David is telling us how deep our confession needs to be and what it would look like. The Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, you know the setting of this, 2 Samuel chapter 11 through 12. 2 Samuel chapter 11 is all about David and his great sin. You remember his progression of sin. In 2 Samuel 11, number 1, he's not at war um, with joining with his army fighting against the enemy. He should have been. The law commanded that he would be there. So he's disobeying God's word and he's staying at home. He's being lazy and undisciplined. And when you are lazy and undisciplined, you're going to walk right into sin. Sure enough, that's what he did. Instead of being at war, he's up Uh, on the top of his roof, just hanging out, maybe with a little bit of pride in his heart, looking over his kingdom, saying, look at what all that I have done. And he sees Bathsheba bathing, and he calls his servant and says, go to her and bring her to me. I am the king. I get to do whatever I want. There are so many times in David's uh, account here, there are so many times when he could have and should have said, wait, hang on, no. No, 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 we shouldn't go through with this. He had forgotten the presence of God. He had forgotten that God was looking. And so he brings Bathsheba to him. We have no, uh, no sense in the text that Bathsheba was in on this. No preconceived adultery. Um, so for all intents and purposes, though we like to dress it up and make it prettier by saying he had an affair, maybe a little bit less pretty, he was an adulterer. Um, but I think for all intents and purposes, he was a rapist, um, forcing himself on Bathsheba. And you guys know, she becomes pregnant, and David says, we need to cover this up. And we're going to cover it up by bringing Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, home. And we are going to um, have him sleep with her in such a way that he will think that this is his child. You remember, Uriah is so faithful to his king and to his kingdom, that he says, how could I possibly partake of something here when my men, my comrades, are out on the battlefield dying? I'm going to stay sober. I'm going to stay ready. I'm going to stay alert. And at any moment's notice, I could be called away. Because of his integrity and his faithfulness, 
David says, okay, I'm going to have to try and work this in a different angle. And so he actually gets him drunk. And even in a drunken stupor, Uriah says, no, I'm not going to. So David's plan to cover it up fails. Uriah goes back to the front lines, but not before David conspires with another plan. If I can't get him uh, to think this is his child, then I will kill him. We have David as a rapist. We have David as a murderer. David writes a note to Joab, the commander. says, um, let Uriah go to the front lines with all the other troops, and when the battle starts, pull all the troops back. Let Uriah die. And it's so interesting to note that that entire plot is based solely on Uriah's integrity. Because Uriah is the one holding that note. Uh, sure, it's sealed, but I mean, you can take it and put it up to the sun, right? You can do those tricks to figure out what's being written here. David writes a note, seals it up, gives it to Uriah, and says, Uriah, take this to Joab. And he knows Uriah is so faithful, so filled with integrity, that he knows he's not going to be looking at this. Because if he looks at it, then he's surely not going give, to give it to Joab and not die. So, Joab receives the message from Uriah. Uriah is put on the front lines. The troops are pulled back. Uriah is killed. David mourns with Bathsheba and then marries her, trying to cover up the pregnancy. And he thinks that he did. He thinks he got away with it. But the end of 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27 says, But the thing David has, had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. So though it was not seen by anybody else, it was seen by God. God saw, and it was evil. 2 Samuel chapter 12 is almost nine months later when Nathan the prophet goes to David. You remember that section of scripture? Nathan tells him a parable about a man who has a lot of sheep, and then he's going to steal another sheep. And David gets angry and says, why are you taking that away? He should be punished. Nathan says, you are that man. You've stolen what was not yours. You've lied. You've cheated. You've covered up. You've murdered. And David is broken. The consequence for his sin is the death of the child. That's the immediate consequence. And then there are so many other consequences that follow. But when Nathan speaks to him, and again, in this superscription, there's one thing that you have to note. It says, A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Nathan was speaking the words of God, right? He's a prophet. He's a mouthpiece for God. And when confronted by God's word, David is broken. The only way we are going to find true confession, true remorse, true repentance over our sin is when the word does its job to convict us. If you try to be convicted over your sin with anything other than the word, you won't be convicted the way you need to be. And so David is broken. He, in his disobedience, had been estranged from God and he wanted to be reconciled. His sin had made him dirty and he wanted to be cleansed. His iniquity had made him afraid and filled with guilt and he wanted to be at peace. And so this psalm lays out what true confession looks like. You have to see yourself for who you truly are. You have to see sin for what it truly is. You have to see God for who he truly is. One commentator says, No Bible story describes the heart's convicting quite like 2 Samuel 12, and no Bible prayer expresses the lips confessing quite like Psalm 51. So we're going to see David's path. This is kind of 
a prodigal's path home, if you will. This is David returning to the Lord in confession and repentance. This passage is notoriously difficult to outline. There are no two outlines that are the same in every commentary that I've read. It's always seven this, five this, two that. It's so challenging because it's just his heart that is being spilled out before us. But for the purpose of outline today, we're just going to split it up into two parts. Verses 1 through 9, we see David's cry for pardon. Verses 1 through 9, his cry for pardon. And verses 10 through 16, we see David's cry for purity. He's crying for pardon, and he's crying for purity. And within that, you'll see a lot of different um, sub-points underneath that, three underneath each point. So, number one, let's look at verses 1 through 2. As David cries for pardon, number one, he appeals to God's character. He appeals to God's character. This is verses 1 through 2. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He's asking God to be gracious to him. God loves doing good to those who deserve the exact opposite. God loves that. And so David says, be gracious to me according to who you are, not according to what I've done or who I am. According to your loving kindness. We've looked at that word the last three weeks now, hesed. According to your covenant-keeping love. Hesed is, it's really two words that are smashed together. It's one word that's all about a covenant being made, and then the second part is a word all about the covenant being kept. So God's making a covenant and keeping that covenant in love with you and with me. Remember, we defined hesed as uh, when, when the person from you, whom you have the right to expect nothing gives you everything. We have the right to expect nothing from God. And that's why David's coming. He's not saying, be merciful to me because I'm sorrowful or because I'm contrite. Be merciful to me because I'm sad or be merciful to me because I'll change. He's saying, be gracious and merciful because of who you are. You love to forgive, God. You love that. He is not asking God to be fair. He's asking God to be unfair. What I deserve is what I desperately do not want. Give me something else. He's pleading for forgiveness. He says, according to the greatness of your compassion, your love, your tender mercy, some of your Bibles might say, blot out my transgressions. Blot out. Remove entirely. Um, this isn't like you make a mistake on a piece of paper and you use whiteout. Um, now it's those little strips, those little things that you use. It, that's not what it is. It's not saying it's there, but we're covering over it. Um, what would happen is you'd have a piece of, of leather, a hide that something had been written on, ink had been spilled on. And so you would take that hide and you would take it to a river, you'd take it to a water source, and you would wash it. You would rub it together in such a way that the ink would come out entirely so you would not be able to see what had been written. It's not covering over, it's taking it completely away. As if it had never happened. David is saying, I'm a criminal, I have a criminal record, and I'm praying that you would take that criminal record away. He says, blot out my transgressions. He's going to use three word pictures, and that's the first. Blot out my transgressions. The second word picture he uses in verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Wash me. Literally in the Hebrew, it's multiply to wash. Continue your washing. Just keep on going. It's not a one time I'm done. 
It's I need cleansing thoroughly, multiplied from my iniquity. My iniquity, it's a perversion, it's twisted, it's sin, and, and it brings guilt. Cleanse me from my sin. So, blot out my transgression, wash me from my iniquity, and cleanse me. That's, it's, it's a laundering term. It's, it's taking laundry and, and cleansing it from what has made it dirty. Wash me and cleanse me. Um, ceremonially, people would be cleansed so that they could stand before God rightly. That's what David's asking for. Wash me, do the work of taking out the dirt from my laundry, and then cleanse me from my sin in a ceremonial way so I can stand before you. What we need to do when we sin is we need to plead with our God for mercy. Appeal to His character. He is a God who loves to forgive. Psalm 103, verse 10, God does not deal with us according to our iniquities. He doesn't. In fact, Psalm 30, verse 3, if God should mark our iniquities, no one could stand. Meaning, He doesn't mark our iniquities because we are standing, we're here. God loves to forgive. So, one of the best ways you can figure out if you are on the road to true confession and repentance is is your first step towards God when you sin. You remember Adam and Eve? They sin, they run from God. Their first step is away from God. So often we tend to think, and I've heard this so many times, I will go to church when I've cleaned myself up. I need to get some things together, and then I'll go to church. I need to get some things made right with God, and then I'll go. That's the exact opposite of what we should do. The church is a hospital for spiritually sick people. We come broken, as David's going to say, we come contrite, we come humble, we come saying, I, I don't have any pieces fitting together, I need you. But the first question that David's answering for us is, are you taking a step towards God when you sin? David's step towards God looks like pleading with him, God, you, he's appealing to his character, God, you love to forgive, so please forgive me. Number two, under his cry for pardon, David acknowledges his sin. David not only appears, appeals to God's character, but he acknowledges his sin. So the very first thing that he does in this road to confession is, God, I need mercy, and I know you love to give it, and I'm coming to you. The second thing he does is, and I'm a sinner, and this is what I've done. This is in verses 3 through 6. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. I have transgressed. I've gone beyond what your law has told me to do. I've broken your law. I am a criminal. And my sin is ever before me. I can't get away from it. I live with the guilt. It's the sting of my sin. Every day I sin. I can't get away from it. In verse 4 and 5, he's going to take full responsibility for his sin. Against you, Verse 4, and you alone, you only, you all by yourself, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Does that mean that he didn't sin against Bathsheba? No. Does that mean he didn't sin against Uriah? No. He sinned against all those other people. He sinned against um, Uriah and Joab and the armies and Bathsheba. He sinned against the nation of Israel. He sinned against so many people. But what he's saying is, compared to the way that my sin has impacted them, my sin has estranged and impacted God all the more. I have offended God because He is holy and I am not. The reality is when we sin, usually we deal with things horizontally before we even deal with them vertically. Um, if I get 
mad at Casey and I, I yell at her. And Usually I'll go to her first and say, oh, I'm, so, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. Maybe I won't even go to God. Say, please forgive me for yelling, for getting angry or impatient. David says, you know what, I need to go to God first. He sees his sin in light of God. And that's why he says, what I have done is evil in your sight. R.C. Sproul says it best. Sin is cosmic treason against God. Sin is evil. It is wicked. It is wishing that God were dead. We categorize sin. We, we even you know, make up different names so that it's no longer sexual immorality. It is an affair. We try to make it less hideous. And David says, in all of its fury, I'm going to stare at the seriousness of my sin and be undone. We don't like to do that. We like happy things. And David says, no, I'm going to stare at my sin. And you are, God, you are justified when you speak out against me. You are blameless when you judge. David, just the same way he, he used three word pictures in verses 1 and 2, he's going to take full responsibility in three ways in these verses. Number one, he's going to claim and proclaim that every sin is an affront. It's a personal affront to God. He's saying, I've sinned against you. I've hated you. I've spurned you. I've offended you. It's a personal affront against God. Number two, he's going to acknowledge that God bears no responsibility for his sin, and he's right to judge. He's not blaming. God, you are completely innocent of this, and you are right to judge me. This is the exact opposite of what happens in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve say, well, it's the, the woman. Well, it's the serpent. Well, it's this. Well, it's that. If you hadn't, and David could have done that. Well, she needed a roof on her house. She shouldn't have been there. She, he easily could have done that. And he says, no, you are justified when you speak. I will not make excuses or rationalize or justify my sin. You are blameless when you judge. And then he's going to say in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. This is David admitting sin isn't an accident. It's an expression of who we are by nature. He's taking full responsibility. He's not saying, God, please forgive me, because you know I'm really not usually like this. He's saying, I'm always like this. This is who I am through and through. I was brought forth in iniquity. As I was born, I was a sinner. And in sin, my mother conceived me. That's not talking about his mother and his mother's choices. It's talking about David at the moment of conception being by very nature a sinner. Now, Paul will tell us in Romans chapter 9 um, that God chose Jacob and Esau while they were in the womb before they had the possibility of doing anything right or wrong, good or bad. But David isn't saying that babies inside of your mother's womb are just cursing God and hating him. In fact, I believe that the Bible would say the exact opposite. I would believe that the Bible would say that they haven't committed wrong, that they aren't actively with sins of commission offending God. I think it takes them a while to do that. But when they do do that, it's because they have a nature that is filled with sin. There is a way to have a, a sin nature in the womb while not committing sin. And that's a, a huge reality to us. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It is by our very nature that we sin. And so David isn't saying, you know what, I really am innocent. Obviously in this one area I'm, I'm guilty, but that's a mistake. I don't normally do that. 
like when we went to the Philippines a number of years ago, and we went to a prison, and everybody in the prison, you know, the judge got it wrong, they're innocent, I didn't do it, you know, what are you in, what are you in for? Well, I didn't do anything, but the judge said that, I mean, everybody, everybody's innocent, everybody's innocent. They're all justifying, they're all rationalizing, they're all lying, they're all saying things that aren't even true. I remember we went to death row. It was one of the more impactful moments of my life. And uh, I talked to a man who didn't do that. He didn't justify. He didn't rationalize. He didn't say, you know, it was a cover-up operation or somebody framed me. He said, this is what I've done. And he shared things with me. I mean, I can't even share it publicly. It was so heinous. It was so wicked. It was so evil. He said, this is everything I've done. And I deserve to die. And just with tears in his eyes, weeping, said, that's why I love Jesus. Because I deserve to die. I'm here because I deserve to die. Sounds like the thief on the cross, right? We have received the punishment that is due our sin. So Jesus, please have mercy. Remember me. I can't do this on my own. I believe that I'll see this man in heaven one day. All sin is sin because God is good and we are not through and through. And so David doesn't make excuses. He says, I am a sinner. And he acknowledges his sin. Sometimes we repent because we've been caught. We're sorry for our sin because we've been caught. That's exactly what's happening here. Uh, The better thing would be to own it before you get caught. The better thing would be in truest repentance to repent because you've grieved God, not because you've been caught. So David acknowledges his sin. He appeals to God's character. Thirdly, in his cry for pardon, he trusts in God's atonement. This is verses 7 through 9. He trusts in God's atonement. At the end of verse 6, he says, You desire truth in the inmost being, I don't have that. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. I don't have it. So verse 7, purify me. I am filled with sin. You need to purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. You need to wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. That hyssop branch is a branch that was used, it was actually used in Exodus when Moses um, dips the branch into the blood of the lamb and sprinkles it over and paints it on the doorpost of the house. David's saying, do that to me. Cover me with your blood. Paint over me with your forgiveness so that I would be cleansed. Wash me so that I will be whiter than snow. You can do it, and I'm praying that you would do it. Just write down Psalm 86, verse 5. It says that God is good, and He is ready to forgive, abounding in love. He is ready to forgive. He loves to forgive. That is his, one of His greatest passions, to give grace. And so David trusts. You could say he hopes in God's atonement. So much so that he says, verse 8, Make me to hear joy and gladness. Undo this. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. In the innermost part I have been filled with guilt. So take it away. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Cleanse me, God. And he trusts that God will cover and forgive and atone. Very interesting because the prodigal son, uh, his confession and David's confession are very similar. Remember, the prodigal son is with the pigs in the slop and he doesn't have enough food and 
starving, no friends, no money. And he says, you know what? I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to say, I don't deserve to be your son anymore. Make me as one of your hired servants. And it says, because I remember there was no one at his table that was going without bread. He constantly provides. He's a good father. He loves his people. David says the same thing. David's saying, I'm not worthy to be your son. I've broken your laws. I'm a criminal against you. But I remember that you are good and you love to give grace and forgive. So I'm going to go to you. I'm going to go to you. David trusts in God's atonement. That's all his cry for pardon. Number two, he cries out for purity. He cries out for purity. And just as with his cry for pardon, there's really kind of three ways that he looks as he cries out for purity. Number one, he looks inward. He looks inward. This is in verses 10 through 12. When he cries out for purity, he first looks inward to say, I need purity in the inmost part. He already said that in verse 6. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. We talked about this in Family Bible Hour. He's saying, God, I need you to do the work to cleanse my heart. And he says, create in me. I love that. That's the Hebrew word bara, which is the, um, in Genesis 1, God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is so much wickedness and sin in my heart that I need you to undo it all and make it new. Create something, as it were, out of nothing. Whenever our sweet, dear little child disobeys us, um, it's the most frustratingly circular conversation. He'll do something wrong, you know, just take a toy from Ethan or hit him with something. And, and I'll say, Chelsea, why did you do that? Because I genuinely want to know. What was it? Like, did he just give you a weird look today? Or what was it that made you do that? She says, because I disobeyed. Well, yeah, I know you disobeyed. Like, that's, I'm asking you, why? Why did you disobey? Because I took his toy. I'm at, I know that. Why did you take his toy? Because I disobeyed. And just, okay, we need to move on to something else here because this is not working. But when we sit her down and we talk through, why do you sin? Why do you sin? And what do you need to do differently? That's, that's one that she's starting to get. And she will say, I sinned because I need a new heart. I have a heart that is filled with wickedness. I have a heart that's filled with sin. I sinned because I don't have a good heart. I need a new heart. So we always pray, God, give me a new heart. And hopefully one day that prayer will be a reality for her. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit that would stare at God alone and not at sin and follow Him. Don't cast me away from Your presence. Don't take me away from your presence. I want to be with you. I long to be with you. So he's still staring inward. My sin is keeping me from you. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. This isn't saying that the Holy Spirit can be taken away from believers. You remember, um, this is, if you want to use the big word, this is the theocratic anointing of the Holy Spirit. This is, you remember that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit wasn't given to all believers. That's what happened at Pentecost and, and afterwards in the New Testament. You and I have the Holy Spirit if you're a believer. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was given to specific people to do specific things. You remember the Holy Spirit was given to Samson. And because uh, Samson was given the Holy Spirit, he could do all sorts of things that he otherwise couldn't have done. A lot of people tend to think 
Oh, Samson must have just looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger, just this enormous, massive guy. I actually think it's the exact opposite. He probably looked a lot like me, and so when he's picking up and bench-pressing all these enormous amounts of weight, everybody's saying, how can he do that? Because look at him, he's a stick. There's no way he could do that. And they say, oh, God must be with him. You remember that. That's why God gave him the Holy Spirit, so that people would say, God is with him. Um, You wouldn't say that about Arnold Schwarzenegger. He bench presses a million pounds, and you don't look at him and go, God must be with him. You look and say, he's got enormous muscles. So the Holy Spirit was given to people to do specific tasks. And I, I believe that David is saying, God, don't take away your spirit from me. I've seen it done. You remember the last person that was given the Holy Spirit before David? was Saul. And David saw Saul with the Holy Spirit, and David saw Saul without the Holy Spirit. David saw what it looked like to have the Spirit and then to have that Spirit taken away. Saul lost his mind. He went insane and ended up committing suicide. And David says, don't do that to me. I know what that looks like. I know what that feels like. I don't want that to happen. Please save me. Spare me. He's not saying, save me again. In fact, verse 12, he specifically says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Not, restore to me your salvation because I've lost it. He's saying, restore to me the joy of the salvation that I could never lose. And this is so important. You can't lose the Holy Spirit and you can't lose your salvation. If you're truly saved, there's no way you can lose your salvation. David knows that. Even in the midst of his sin, grievous, wicked, heinous sin, He says, I still have salvation, but I have no joy. The joy is gone. The joy is gone. Maybe you are like William Cooper. We heard this from Brian a couple weeks ago. He said, where is is that blessedness I knew when I first saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? Oh, what peaceful hours I once enjoyed. How sweet their memory still but they have left an aching void that the world can never fill. He struggled with sin. Remember, he stared at his sin so much he was overcome with guilt and fear and didn't turn to Jesus right away, and so he struggled with the joy of his salvation. Brothers and sisters, you can turn to Jesus right now. If you would say with William Cooper, you know what, I know I'm saved, but my love for Jesus just seems gone. A lot of people described it as mountaintop experiences, and then I'm in a valley or a dry season, whatever you want to say, if that is you this morning and you are struggling to have a vibrant walk with the Lord, can I just plead with you, check your heart, ask the Lord to reveal, is it sin in my life that's keeping me from a vibrant relationship with God? Is it sin in my life that's destroying the joy of my salvation? The good news is you can turn right now. You can turn at this very moment to Jesus Christ and say exactly what David is saying. I'm going to plead according to your character that you would forgive me. You love to forgive. I'm pleading with you to forgive. I'm going to acknowledge my sin right now. I'm going to trust in your atoning work. I'm going to look inward that you would cleanse me. I'm going to look outward. I'm going to look upward as we're going to see in a little bit. I am going to walk through this path and today I can find that joy again of my salvation. You can turn to Christ now and find that joy. David looks inward He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then he looks outward. He looks inward as he cries for purity. He says, I need you to do the work inside of me. Now he looks outward. Number two, this is verses 13 through 15. He's going to look outward 
as he cries for purity. He's going to say this purity inward will affect others outward. Verse 13, Then, if you do this work in me, God, I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. If you cleanse me, I will teach others, and they will be cleansed also. That's what he's saying. One pastor says this way, Evangelism is only a duty when the gospel itself loses its sweetness and luster in your heart. Worship is only a burden when the silver lining of the gospel has become tarnished and dull in your life. When the Lord makes it to shine again, you will be unable to do anything other than resolve with David to tell all about your wonderful Savior and to delight to sing his praise. Have you this morning become so dull inside with the joy that you have for Christ You forget his mercy, and therefore you are not telling anybody about it. Why would you go share the gospel of Jesus Christ when it hasn't impacted your heart? So David says, I'm going to teach transgressors your ways. As you cleanse me, I'll tell them you can be cleansed too. A sinner will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. If you do that, then my tongue will sing joyfully of your righteousness. I won't help. I couldn't help but sing. I won't be able to stop. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. You see, a lot of people think, oh, I I can sin in this way because it's private and it doesn't affect everybody or anybody around me. The reality is, David says, my sin affects everyone. Your sin personally, privately affects everyone. You cease to do evangelism. You cease to show forth the joy of your salvation. Sin corrupts you and it tarnishes your relationships around you. So David looks inward, he looks outward, and then finally he looks upward. Verses 16 through 19. He says, you know what, God, I want my inward being to be cleansed so that outwardly I would be able to share with others of what you will do and what you can do and what you have done. But verse 16, he, starts, he ends by looking at God. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. What's he saying there? Because, number one, that did please God back then. And number two, he's going to say it again. Like, we're going to give sacrifices, burnt offering, whole burnt offering, young bulls will be offered. So you're not pleased by it, but we're going to do it. What's he saying? I think what he's saying is, He knows what it's like to worship God with externals only and not an inward heart that loves God. I mean, think about it. He did this for almost nine months. He was doing this. Nobody other than Bathsheba and maybe Joab and and a couple of his servants knew the sin that David had committed. So he's going into the tabernacle. He's going into God's house, sacrificing. Boom, here we go. Going to worship God with externals that were not pleasing God because his internal, his heart, was far from God. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you don't delight in mere externals. I could go perform sacrifices for you. I could go do what worship does and and what it looks like. But if I do that without a heart that is truly yours, if I do that with a heart that's covering sin, that's hiding sin, then it won't please you. It won't please you. So what does please God? It's inward, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He says, you know what? I 
I will not go before you and offer a sacrifice externally when my heart is not broken and contrite. Again, he's not saying, let me fix myself before I go before the Lord. He's saying, I can go broken and you will mend me. I can go broken and humble and you will give me grace. Brothers and sisters, you will not be despised. You will not be turned away by Jesus Christ. You can go before Him this day and say, these are the things I've done and I can't fix them. I don't know what to do. And I am sorrowful over them and desire to repent. And God will not stand there as it were with arms folded and say, you better get your act together. Come see me when things are better. He welcomes you. He doesn't turn you away. Verses 18-19, through what else does he love to do? He loves to repair and bring restoration. Verse 18, by your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Wait, we were talking about David's private sin. No, this is a public matter. The whole nation was suffering. The whole nation now could be under the condemnation of God through the leadership of the nation. And so David says, please, let us prosper. Give us favor. As I turn from sin, may we be blessed. And then verse 19, Then, when we are blessed, when we go before you the way that we should, you will delight in righteous sacrifices. Notice now it's righteous sacrifices. Now it's not just merely externals, but it's an external that's done with the right heart. Remember that was Cain and Abel, right? It wasn't that Cain brought a good offering and Abel brought or Cain brought a bad offering and Abel brought a good offering. A lot of people think that that was the reason why God loved Abel and did not love Cain. Um, if you go back to that passage, it says that Cain, uh, out of the, the goodness of his heart, brought forth his, and then Abel, out of the goodness of his heart. It was a heart issue. Regardless of the externals, Cain's heart wasn't right, and that's what displeased God. Abel's heart was right. So, the same exact offerings are being offered, the same sacrifices are being sacrificed, but now they are righteous sacrifices because the heart is right. In burnt offering and whole burnt offerings and young bulls bulls will be offered on your altar, then we will be able to worship you and praise you, reconciled, right relationship with you. That's what we're going to be able to do because you've cleansed us. That is the path of confession that David takes us on. That is the prodigal's path home, if you will. David first cries out for pardon and he appeals to the character of God. He acknowledges his sin and he trusts in God's atoning work. And then he cries out for purity. God, please cleanse me. Forgive me, then cleanse me. Um, Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save me from wrath. Pardon me and cleanse me. Make me pure. David cries out for pardon and then he cries out for purity and when he cries out for purity he looks inward, he looks outward, and he looks upward. He says, God, you must do that work. So how do we prepare for the Lord's Supper? That's exactly how we prepare. We cry out for God's mercy and we cry out for God to purify our hearts. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us that we need to sit in judgment upon ourselves. We need to judge ourselves rightly before we eat of this table. And we need God's help to do that. Andrew Murray said, Man is by nature so entirely under the power of sin 
that he can hide it from himself even when he has committed it. This is one of the most dangerous manifestations of sin. It blinds the heart. It is the work of the Spirit and the grace of God to make the soul acknowledge sin. That's why we need God's help to do that. Thomas Watson said we need to do it now. He said, by delay of repentance, sin strengthens and the heart hardens. The longer ice freezes, the harder it is to be broken. Proverbs chapter 28, verses 13 through 14. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion, will find mercy. If you try to cover your sin up, God will uncover it and expose it. But if you expose your sin and and confess and repent and forsake, God will cover it and do away with it. Psalm 66, 18, If I regard wickedness in my heart, if I hang on to it, if I harbor it, the Lord will not hear. But if I confess it, then our right relationship is restored. Before we partake of the Lord's Supper, I want us to remember Isaiah chapter 6, because I think Isaiah chapter 6 is very similar to what David's doing here. Isaiah sees God's holiness, and in light of God's holiness, remember, sin is only sin because God is good and we are not. Isaiah sees God's God's holiness. He sees God in his purity, and he immediately says, I can't be in his presence. I'm a sinner. I am undone. And then God says, I will make a way. You remember the coal is brought and touches his lips. He is cleansed. God says, I'll, I'll provide a way to cleanse you. And now you can go forth and tell the nations. David's doing the same thing. God, you are holy. I am not. I am worthy of punishment and I'm pleading with you to cleanse me somehow. And the, the amazing truth of this prayer is it was answered through David's sin. It was answered through his sin. His prayer is, cleanse me thoroughly. Wash me once and for all. And the only way that's possible is Jesus Christ being born. And Jesus is born through the line that is produced with David and Bathsheba. The beauty of God is that he brings beauty out of ashes. The beauty of what God does is he makes all things new, and even the things that we have done. You remember Joseph says, God meant this for good, even though you were meaning it for evil. God had a plan. So we need to go before God and see his holiness We need to see His power to cleanse us. We need to see that He's willing to cleanse us. He loves us and we need to cry out for His cleansing. Then we will be filled with joy. So we're going to do that. We're going to do that through song. We're going to do that through taking the Lord's Supper together. Worshiping Him. Let's stare at His holiness. Let's stare at our sin. Let's stare at the provision made to cleanse us. Let's confess our sins because He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, past, present, and future. God, we thank you for your grace. And I pray that as we prepare our hearts now and as we sober-mindedly sit in judgment, as your word says, upon our own hearts, that we will look upward, that we will see you in your holiness. We will look inward. We will see our sinfulness and that you can and love to make us pure and that we will look outward to see that the blessings that you can offer others through us is only possible with a broken and a contrite heart. God, thank you that you do not despise us. You do not forsake us. You do not turn us away. 
But now as we sing to You, be pleased as we walk down this road of confession, this path back to You, to work in our hearts and to help us know the joy of our salvation.